Well, earlier this week, some of you may have received an email from me asking if you had any creative, fun uh, birth announcements that either you received or you sent out to send me some. So I got a few of them, and I want to share those with you this morning. Here is uh, the first one. Everybody, the collective. Oh, this is sweet Maddie Landusky. And uh, so this is the, the Landusky's invitation or announcement. And it's, these are fun because you'll see they're, they're creative. They have some excitement attached to them. There's, there's a story within these announcements. And you'll see that as we go through them. Uh, this one is uh, from the Hodge family. This is what you see on the front side as their house is getting full. And this is what you see on the back side as they've added yet another member to the hodgepodge. So that's a fun announcement. Uh, here's one from the Sims family, and if I understand this correctly, Ava and Grant, do they have the same birthday? Is that right? So she's talking about how kids don't like to share, but this, this is something that they are excited to share because Ava and Grant, I think, had the same birthday, and Zach's down there saying, oh, yeah, that's fun. Uh, this one uh, is from Chris and Lacey, right? Recently came out, and... Uh, just the picture says it all, right? All it says is coming on, on a certain date, a certain month, and uh, there's some anticipation of what that is in store. So here's probably my favorite. Here's the parks. <laughs> we dress them up to look real nice, but this is really what it is, right? I think this is classic. I love it. That's their birth announcement. Another one? Are you kidding me? This is a blast from the past. This is one that my parents created when my youngest uh, brother Shannon was born. And what's fun about this is, of course, there's no technology back then to do the creative stuff that we can do now. But this is kind of fun. They set it up like a, a ticket to a movie. And if you all remember the, the old show, My Three Sons, well, they kind of based it off of that, announcing the, the birth of my youngest brother Shannon. So this is kind of fun. So I, I share these with you because birth announcements are just fun. They're fun to give, they're fun to receive, and the best are the ones that, that tell a story where there's some anticipation, there's delight, there's a context that those stories are being told within. Well, over the next uh, four weeks, we're going to be looking at the birth announcements of Jesus, and I believe you're going to find the very same things true about those birth announcements. They're, they're exciting. There's something that there's, that there's, there's anticipation, and there's a context, there's a, a story being told within these birth announcements. As we see these announcements being made, each time we're going to learn something unique about the person and work of Jesus Christ, and that's what we'll look at together over the next few weeks. So before we do that, let me uh, begin our time with prayer. Father, we're grateful for the creativity and the deliberate way in which you announce the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In the different ways, through the different people, you told us some things that are really important for us to know about who he is and what he came to do. So as we look at one of these announcements this morning, would you give us some new fresh eyes to, to hear those words that were first spoken to Joseph? Um, that we might hear them with a, a freshness in our own ears this morning. And that that excitement and response that he had might be echoed in our life as well. Father, that's our prayer and our desire. May you go before us and have your way. We pray this in your name. Amen. 
So if you would, turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Um, I have a lot of these uh, verses up on the slides. would encourage you to look at them in the Bible in front of you if you have one. Um, but uh, you'll see them in both places. Uh, these first two verses, Matthew uh, chapter 1, verse 18 and 19 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, she, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. These two verses actually follow a very long genealogy that precedes them. It's the genealogy of Joseph. But I want us to go back to verse 14 and notice a pattern and how that pattern is interrupted when you get to Joseph. So it says, beginning in verse 14, And to Azor was born Zadok, and to Zadok, Achim, and to Achim, Eliad. And to Eliad was born Eleazar, and to Eleazar, Mathan, and to Mathan, Jacob. And to Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. The genealogy really ends with a question mark, doesn't it? Because the birth of Jesus does not follow as all the other ones preceding it. It's not listed as the son of Joseph like the others before him. And it begs the question then, well, whose son is he? If he's not the son of Joseph, who's, whose son is he? Well, that's when Matthew comes in and begins to explain the answer to that question. And in verse 18, it says, now the birth of Jesus is as follows. He's going to give us the answer to that question implied in the genealogy. The first thing we learn is that Mary is betrothed to Joseph. Now, it's really to, important to understand what that means in that culture, in that context, because it is not the same thing as engagement in our culture today. When two people decide that they want to get married, they get engaged before that day of, of being married. But it's not like what happened in that culture. In that culture, two families determined which two people would get married, who the husband and wife would be. And when they came to that agreement, it was a binding agreement, just like the marriage would have been. So the betrothal was just as legally binding as the marriage itself. And that betrothal would last an entire year before the actual wedding would take place. And the only way to dissolve that relationship, even within that betrothal, was through divorce. Which is why in verse 19 it says that Joseph intended to put her away secretly. That is saying that she, he was intending to end the relationship, the betrothal, through a divorce. Now we read that and at first glance that seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? But actually it's very gracious. And here's why. The purpose of the betrothal was to prove the woman's purity. It was to show that she was a pure woman. And at face value, Mary's pregnancy proves that she was not pure. By all appearances, she has been unfaithful. <laughs> because keep in mind, Mary has spent the last three months with her cousin Elizabeth. And when she comes back, 
she is shown to be with child. Her pregnancy is obvious by this time. So let me ask you, what would you think when this woman goes away for three months and returns and she's obviously pregnant? There's an assumption that would be made, would it not? There's no record of the conversation that Mary and Joseph have together. I don't know that it would have mattered because it just wouldn't make sense if she tried to explain it to him. Just think about what she would have said. Uh, okay, Joseph, I, I know I've been gone for three months, and well, I'm obviously pregnant, but I promise nothing happened. <laughs> she, she would go on to try to explain, God did it. <laughs> God did it. And he might ask, well, how do you know God did it? And he said, she would have said, because an angel told me. Now you tell me, <laughs> how believable is this story at this point? So you can imagine what the expectation would have been. So no matter what she said, she couldn't have explained it in a way that it would have been understandable. The only logical explanation was that Mary had been unfaithful. So the fact that Joseph is gracious enough to let her go away in secret says something about his character from his perspective you keep in mind now that from his perspective his bride-to-be has been unfaithful to him and yet he chooses not to make a scene he's not going to take this to court he's not going to go to the elders at the city gate much like Jesus did when he met the woman caught in adultery, he's going to let her go away in grace. And I think that's part of the reason the scripture says that Joseph was a righteous man. Because he's handling this in a way that was very unique and not something that most would have done. Was he heartbroken? Absolutely. Was he hateful or bitter? No, he was not. His response was, extraordinary but that's based on what it looks like from his perspective in these verses we also get a glimpse of what it looks like from God's point of view if you look again at verse 18 at the end it says there that she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit so from the divine point of view this illogical unprecedented supernatural event was in fact a work of God. What was impossible from a logical man perspective is possible with God. Mary was right. God did this. Jesus would be born of a woman. He would be fully man in that sense. But he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, fully God in that sense. So, the answer to that question as we begin to understand through this announcement who is the father of Jesus well, clearly we're beginning to see Jesus is the son of God and that's very repeated throughout the gospels Jesus son of God look at how it continues in verse 21 or verse 20 but when he had considered this behold an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name 
Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. So this is the birth announcement that Joseph gets. <laughs> and we saw some pretty creative ones, but I think this one tops them all, right? This is the announcement that he receives from the angel. Now, we see this as important because the angel's very specific in how he addresses Joseph. Look again, he says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. If we go back to that genealogy, we'll see that one of the things that is highlighted is the fact that Joseph is from the line of David. If you look in Luke's gospel, as he explains the birth of Christ, and after that birth, how his family had to go and do a collect a census, or before his birth, that's why they went from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Why? Because they had to go to the land of their forefathers, the home of their forefathers. And for Joseph, that was David from the tribe of Judah, from the city of Bethlehem, where Jesus was ultimately born. So all throughout Scripture, this being a descendant from David is obviously important. And so the angel wants Joseph to be reminded, you are son of David. So knowing Joseph is the son of David has to mean something when it comes to understanding who Jesus is. And it does. Because God made a promise to David. It was a covenant promise that would be passed down through him to all of his descendants that would follow him from one generation to the next. And that was a promise that was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And I want to show you how that unfolds. And so you can turn there if you want to. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is where we'll be. But I'm going to look at this um, with you on the screen. So uh, let me back up. So 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, verses 8 and 9, uh, says this. This is the promise that God made to David. It says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make your name great, like the names of great men who are on the earth. So the first part of this promise that, that God makes to David and to the descendants that would follow him is that he would make their name great. And that promise is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Think about what Paul says in Philippians. For this reason also God highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name above every name. So that at that name of Jesus every knee will bow, every tongue confess, both in heaven and on earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God made a promise to David that he would make his name great. That promise was fulfilled in Jesus, the name above every name, the name that every knee will bow and every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. But he goes on in that promise in Samuel and says, I will also appoint a place for my people, Israel, and, and will plant them, and they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly. Who promises a place, a place that his people would be protected. And we see that unfolding through history, but ultimately we will see it unfolded in Christ. Remember the promise that he made to his disciples? In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would not have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. 
If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. That promise was made to David and it was ultimately fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He goes on in Samuel and says, Even from the day I commanded the judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. He promised this rest to David and his descendants, and we know that that promise was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. What did he tell us? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That promise made to David, a covenant promise that could not be broken, was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. It goes on. And Samuel says, when your days are completed and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you. Speaking of Solomon, his son, who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, which he did, the temple built by Solomon. And I will establish the throne of my kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and will be a son. he will be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, it will, I will correct him with the, with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom removed from before you. Now listen to this. Your house. Your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So there were really two parts to this aspect of the promise that God was making to David. He said, you'll have a son, a son of Solomon, and he will build the house that I would not let you build because of the sin that you committed against me, but he will. And then he goes on to say that through this line, there will be a kingdom. And it will be an eternal kingdom, a kingdom that will last forever. We'll look at the announcement in the Gospel of Luke when it says of Jesus, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give Him the throne of His father David. And He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And His kingdom will have no end. The promise made to David was fulfilled by Jesus. I think Paul sums it up wonderfully in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Look at what he says. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, but who was declared son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. Jesus Christ, our Lord. So yes, it was very important for Joseph and for everyone else to understand that Jesus came from the line of David because there was a very important promise that God made to David and his descendants that was fulfilled ultimately and completely in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we don't want to miss that. But the other thing that we don't want to miss is the fact that the angel gave him a name. He told Joseph what to name this child that would be born, and embedded in that name was the purpose of his life. We see that again in Matthew verse 21. It says, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, 
For it is he who will save his people from their sins. The Hebrew word for Jesus is Yeshua or Joshua. And it literally means the Lord saves. And the angel goes on to explain specifically how he will save. He says that he will save his people from their sins. Jesus will be the author of forgiveness. But wait a second. That's something only God can do. Exactly. The angel is telling Joseph that Jesus is the promised Messiah. God incarnate. A descendant of David. The son of God. A savior who will save us from our sins. Now that's quite a birth announcement. There's a lot tied up into what the angel spoke to Joseph that day. But look at how he continues. Matthew records in verse 22. Now all this took place that was spoken by the Lord through the prophet that it might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, there will be a virgin with child and shall bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Joseph arose from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took her, Mary, as his wife and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. So Joseph wakes up from his dream and believes the message that had been proclaimed to him alters his life to do something that he wasn't originally intending to do. Instead of divorcing Mary as he thought he would, says that he decides instead to immediately take her to be his wife. Again, this is unusual because he's doing so barely six months into the betrothal period. This is not how it works. But I think Joseph understood the significance of the child that she carried and what she would endure by ridicule and gossip, and he was unwilling to let her do that alone. In loving protection, he took Mary to be his wife. He accepts the responsibility to raise that child as if he were his own. In fact, that's how people came to know Jesus. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. That's what it looked like from, God, from man's perspective. From God's perspective, we see that he is... Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. I think it's just amazing that G J Joseph has this dream, wakes up, and alters his life dramatically to align his life with the message that he had heard from God. To me, that's what it means to be a righteous man who understands God's word and God's promise as the priority over any personal plan or opinion he might have. That's what it means to be a righteous man. And that's what Joseph did. But before we see what Joseph did in response, Matthew kind of gives a little commentary to something that he felt like was significant. We see that uh, in verse 23, 22, when it says, Now all this took place for what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet that might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin will be with child. You shall bear a son, that they will call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. 
this was not something that Matthew, or for anyone else for that matter, understood at the time of Jesus' birth. But by the time Matthew writes this account in his gospel, he's had time to look back and reflect on the whole life and ministry of Jesus. And he now understands that those words spoken by the prophet Isaiah were ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But to understand that, we have to appreciate what was communicated in the context by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah spoke these words during a time of a divided kingdom. By this point, David and his son Solomon had both died. And unfortunately, that kingdom that they reigned in has now been divided between the north and the south. The north is the kingdom of Israel, the south the kingdom of Judah. And by this time, they are both being ruled by selfish, evil men. Pekah in the north and Ahaz in the south. What we learn during this time of this prophecy is that Pekah from the north in Israel has formed an alliance with Damascus. And in that alliance, they've agreed to go against Judah, the small little people group that remains in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. Now, we need to understand that there's a lot that went into this threat. It threatened all the inhabitants of, of Judah. This would be very much like uh, Syria forming an alliance with Arabs in the West Bank to go against Jerusalem. In our current culture, that's what it would look like. So again, not a fair fight. That would be an insurmountable thing to try and overcome. But more disastrous than Judah's defeat would be the fact that it threatened the destruction of the Davidic line. It put God's promise to David in jeopardy. So this battle threatens the character of God as much as it does the survival of God's people. And so that's why Isaiah is called forth by God to speak a promise in the midst of this time. Let's look at that promise together. Then he said, listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. So this is what Matthew's quoting, okay? Look at how he continues. He will eat curds and honey at the time, and, and at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken a couple of things i want you to notice here the the prophet the prophecy was giving this statement as a declaration of time he's saying something's going to happen during a specific period of time the word he uses for virgin in hebrew is a very generic word it simply means a woman who is old enough to be married and have children and what he says is before that woman bears a child and that child is old enough to know the difference between right and wrong. Those two kingdoms that have formed an alliance with you will ultimately be destroyed. It was a promise of God to protect His people. The second thing you need to understand is that the prophecy happened exactly as He said it would. In just a few short years, this unknown empire at that time took over the world, the Assyrian Empire, completely destroying both Israel and Damascus, just as Isaiah 
said it would be. And miraculously, Judah, this small little piece of land with this small little people group with this very important mission, was preserved. It was a miracle. And that's why the promise included the fact that this would be the evidence of Emmanuel. God is with you. So Matthew, looking back at that promise made by Isaiah to the people of God, sees it being fulfilled not just then, but even more so in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, too, was born of a virgin. The word that he uses in the Greek actually is more specific. It's a woman who's never been with a man. He he goes on to say that he will deliver his people from the threat of destruction. That's true, too. But this is not the threat of the destruction of some empire. This is even worse. This is the eternal destruction that comes from sin. Jesus would protect the covenant promise of David. He has done that, and he will ultimately be the one who establishes the kingdom that lives and reigns forever, the eternal kingdom. So Matthew is ultimately proclaiming the same truth that the angel gave to Joseph in his dream. Jesus is the promised Messiah, a descendant of David, the Son of God, a Savior who came to save us from our sins. Jesus is our Emmanuel, God with us. That promise made by Isaiah ultimately fulfilled by Jesus. It's important to look at these truths and to realize that the whole landscape of Scripture ultimately points to Jesus, who fulfills those promises made by God to bring salvation to the world so that all of our hope is ultimately found in Him. Now, I fully understand that this may not be new information to you. We've all heard the Christmas story, I don't know how many different times throughout the years. So here's my question to you as you consider it this morning. Are you living the dream? Now be careful here, because that statement in our context means something different. Living the dream in America is a nice house, an awesome car good financial security, a a fantastic job. That's living the dream, right? That's the American dream. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the dream that Joseph had. Because here's what we need to understand. The revelation that he received in that dream from that angel is the very same words that were spoken to you this morning. So the question is, are you living the dream? Here's the reality. The dream that Joseph received spoke of a Savior. So the question is, do you need a Savior? The dream that Joseph had, he received and immediately altered his life to conform to the message given to him by that angel. Has your life changed because of your faith? The Kennedys are people that I stand so proudly with because of the great testimony of their faith. And much like we talked about through that tragedy, we shared at the funeral service that day a few weeks ago, 
couple of weeks ago whenever we spoke about the reality that we don't want to be unchanged by the circumstances around us. I think one of the greatest strategies of our enemy is to distract us. And man, what a perfect time during this time of year when we celebrate the most significant event in human history to get caught up in gifts, in parties, and, and all the things that go with this season and lose sight of the person and work of Jesus Christ who we can't live without. So we don't want to be unaffected by what is happening. And we need to ask ourselves, are we living the dream? Is our faith any different because of what we proclaim? You see, Joseph went to sleep that night and had one plan in mind for his life. The next day he woke up, it was a different plan, and he would never be the same again. The Kennedys went to bed one night, and they had one plan for their life. They woke up the next morning, and that plan looks completely different. And I have been witness to the fact that their faith has been deepened and strengthened in ways that can only be described as miraculous. They have a testimony that will have impacts for generations and generations to come. But the question is for you and I. Are we going to be unaffected by what is happening, by what we celebrate in the birth of Jesus Christ? Are we living the dream? And has it changed our life? Let's not forget that during the season, especially. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to you, we recognize the reality of our enemy's approach. How he distracts us from things that are most important and ultimately the answer to eternal life. What more would he want us to miss? So, Father, as we look at the life of Joseph and understand both the significance of all that was communicated in that announcement. Jesus, the promised Messiah, Son of God, Savior of the world, descendant of David, fulfilling those promises made ultimately and completely for all eternity. May we not miss the weight of reality fulfilled in Jesus Christ. May we not be unaffected by that truth that was spoken to Joseph and we hear this morning his life changed we want ours to do the same may we live the reality of that dream in our life with just as much change and transformation as we see in his I pray for myself and for each and every one of us that we would in fact live the dream of who you are, why you came, and what you accomplished in life-transforming ways for all eternity. You are our hope, and we put our trust in you, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.